going on in the annex uh, taught by Aaron Foster and, and Drew Bruce on systemic theology. Systemic. There's a system to it all the way through the Bible. So they'll take various topics and then show you how that topic flows all the way through the Bible. Systemic theology. Brother uh, Brandon Elliott will be my co-teacher. Uh, he is out of town today, but I expect him to be in most of these classes. As we begin tonight, there are several people that uh, were listed in our bulletin. We're glad that Ricky Davis is having a good recovery from his heart surgery. We need to keep the Bonham family in our, in our prayers. They'll be leaving tomorrow, flying to New York. Uh, we pray that uh, Bonnie, that uh, Sandy... Uh, gets the report that she wants and gets the treatments that she needs. Uh, Larry Lauder Lambert is in our bulletin. We saw him this afternoon at the Landmark when we were there for the worship service. He seems to be making a good recovery. We need to remember Troy Vanderford. He's a member out at Snowdown. And Randy Hill. Um, several others in our bulletin. Would you bow with me as we begin today? Our loving Heavenly Father, we know that you're all-powerful. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can pause this afternoon to study, and we pray your blessings to be with us in this class. 
We uh, pray for your comfort to be with the Bobby Jennings family. And we have several, Father, that we know are on our sick list. We pray that you'd be with all of them, especially we're thankful for Ricky Davis's uh, good recovery. We pray for the Bonham family and a good outcome for what they find out in New York. We're thankful for Larry Lambert's improvement. We pray that you'd be with Troy Vandiver and Randy Hill and others listed in our bulletin. We're so thankful, Father, for the lesson that we had this morning uh, dealing with Joshua and what kind of great example he was and the kind of instructions he got. And we pray that as we continue this study that you would bless us in our understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As I said, we're going to be studying about Joshua the man and Joshua the book. This is a, intended to be a 13-lesson uh, course. And after it is completed here in the auditorium, it will move the next quarter and the same subject will be taught in the annex. This uh, 13 weeks has one week focused on just Joshua, and that's tonight's lesson. <clears throat> and then following that, we'll have 12 weeks uh, dealing with the book of Joshua. But tonight's lesson I've entitled Joshua Before the Book of Joshua. There are some things that we know about Joshua. We know that uh, he was the son of Nun. I, I have seen people do a play on words on that. So other than Adam and Eve, who had no parents? And somebody will say, well, it was Joshua, the son of Nun. There it is in Exodus 33, 11. He was from the tribe of uh, Ephraim. He was born in Egypt. He left Egypt as a slave with the rest of the Israelites. Uh, I asked my wife how many fighting men left Egypt and it's some, one of those numbers that just sticks in her mind from vacation Bible school or something. 603,550 fighting men or men over the 20 years old. And he was one of those 600,000 plus men that left Egypt. I think this is important because we're going to see that very early into the wanderings, he was picked out as one of the leaders. When you look at the wanderings of the people of Israel, they went through what we would call mostly Saudi Arabia. And Joshua was 45 years old when they crossed the Red Sea. And he was 85 years old when they entered the Promised Land. And we think about Moses being old when he took over the leadership of the people of Israel. But in fact, Joshua was five years older than Moses was when he took over uh, the leadership of the people of Israel. Joshua is first mentioned in Exodus, the 17th chapter. By the way, I, I've got a good assistant tonight. I have asked Brother Rick Warner when we get to extensive uh, Bible reading if he would do that for us. So he has a, a microphone and has graciously agreed to do that. When you look at the uh, context of Exodus, the 17th chapter, 
the people had been uh, complaining about not having water. They're not very far into the journey. They had even gone to the point of asking, is the Lord among us or not? And Moses is given instructions to strike a rock, and water did come forth. Uh, we're going to find that, that this rod that Moses used when they parted, when God parted the Red Sea, and this same rod now that's going to bring forth water, God's got additional plans for this particular thing. We're going to look at Exodus, the 17th chapter, beginning with verse 8. And this is our first mention of Joshua. Rick? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, became heavy so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. You see listed here four men who were identified as leaders over Egypt. You've got Moses and Aaron that we've heard about a lot, a lot about. But here we have Hur introduced and Joshua entered, introduced. So you think about the 600 and plus thousand men to choose from, and these are the four people that are chosen as pretty much the leaders of this group. And to put this in a time perspective, they, on day 25 of leaving Egypt, this mass of people, probably two million people, crossed the Red Sea. And here we are, 21 days or so after that, and we're at Rephidim, and this is where they cried out against Moses because of their thirst, and Moses struck the rock, and this is where Amalek came and attacked them. And so General Joshua is appearing three weeks after they have crossed the Red Sea. And so very early he is picked as one of the leaders of this two million people that are out wandering. And very early we find that God has plans for Joshua. I say that because what we find here in Exodus 17 and verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So 21 days after they're off on their journey, Joshua has won or been the general where God has delivered a great victory. And not only did he deliver the victory, but for some reason Moses is supposed to record what happened in a book 
and then make sure that Joshua is educated on this. If you look at Deuteronomy, the 21st chapter, verses 17 through 19. Rick, would you read that, please? Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear. When you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. In the, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance. That you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well even if they forgot, God did not forget. As you continue to read through the Jewish history, you'll find that there was an interaction between Saul and David and the Amalekites, and ultimately, over in 1 Chronicles 4 and verse 43, uh, during the reign of Hezekiah, this prophecy of God about what's going to happen to the Amalekites occurred. In the uh, wilderness of Sinai, Joshua with Mo is with Moses as he goes up Mount Sinai. And as Ken mentioned in his sermon this morning, by the way, you got the appetizer about Joshua in the sermon this morning. And this 13-week course is going to be the entree. Uh, but he mentioned in, in the sermon this morning that he was called an assistant or an attendant or Moses' minister. Uh, we're going to look at Exodus 24, beginning in verse 9, and read down through verse 18. Rick? Then Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And when they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses and Aaron and Hur and Joshua and the 70 elders started out on the trip. And this is a sort of a, an amazing recount of what happened when you look at those 74 people and what they saw. Anybody remember what they saw? They saw God, and they talked about what was there at, the, at his feet. It was a, 
I guess you'd call it like a platform that was like precious stone sapphire. And the Bible says that they were still able to eat and drink. Now, why do you think that the Bible says they were still able to eat and drink? Do you remember what God said to Moses when Moses wanted to see him? No man can see my face and live. And so these people, I think what we can conclude from there is they did not see God's face, but they were aware of His presence, and Joshua was one of them. I think this is important to remember because, you know, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and nights, and when he comes back down, we'll get to what they encountered when they came down. And these people that had seen God, just look how, we're going to look at how quickly they rejected God. You know, uh, Joshua is with Moses as they come down Mount Sinai. And then we're going to look at Joshua's comments and then Moses' comments back to him. As near as I can tell, the 70 went part way, along with Aaron and her. And then Joshua and Moses went up a little bit further. They went up the mountain. Ultimately, God is going to call Moses out of, he'll call from the cloud and call him. I don't know if Joshua was with him or not. The Bible does not say. But we do know that he was there as his assistant and was up on the mountain well beyond what everybody else was. And he was with Moses when they came down off of the mountain. By the way, as we study tonight, what we're finding is that we find a pretty good account of what was going on with Joshua from the age of 45 up to the age of 47, and then there is a blank period. We don't really know what went on with Joshua until we get to the people getting ready to enter into the promised land. We know he was being trained. It's sort of like Moses. We don't know what Moses found when he was out there playing shepherd for 40 years, but obviously it fit into God's plan for him. Now let's look at Exodus 32, 15 through 19. All right, Rick. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side, on the other side, they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of the defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And in all of the accounts of Joshua, there were, and his interaction with Moses, there are two times that, that Joshua spoke up and then Moses corrected him. I don't know what the significance of that is other than Joshua is still a student and he's learning 
from Moses. This seems to be an, a time when he was learning from Moses. What he heard in the camp, was, both of them heard a noise, but Moses had better perception of what was going on there. It wasn't the battle of winning or the noise of winning. It wasn't the noise of being defeated, but it was just singing. They were having a grand old party, is what it sounds like. And you can tell that Moses was not happy with this, with the reaction that he had. And this, just remember that Joshua is in Moses' presence here, and Joshua is learning from Moses. All right, Rick. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar, of God, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshiped each man at his tent door. So the Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a younger man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Don't get confused about this term tabernacle, which some translations call the tent of meeting. This was before the ultimate tabernacle was built. You know, here on Mount Sinai, Moses is going to get all the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And they're going to stay there. And over a period of almost a year, they're going to build the tabernacle. The ultimate tabernacle had incorporated in it the intent of the tent of meetings. But this is where God's presence was. And Moses and Joshua were in this particular tent. And it's, I think it's interesting that it, it highlights that Joshua was uh, stayed in this particular tabernacle. And we're going to find he stays in the tabernacle when Moses goes back up Mount Sinai for the next time. I didn't go into all the details about what they found, the calf and, and, and all of that, because that's a different lesson. But this is after... They have dealt with the people of Israel because of their sin of making the, the golden calf. And Joshua and Moses has separated himself and the tent of meeting from the rest of the people. And I guess this is a period of real reverence for the people. And you know, when Moses comes out, you remember how his face would be glowing. But this is where Moses and God talk to each other. The Bible doesn't tell us what Joshua heard other than Joshua was, was at the tent. Just remember, God has already picked Joshua to be the next leader. And God is putting Joshua in a position to learn and to learn and to learn. And this is another one of those learning opportunities. Pick. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And, not, and no man shall come up with you, and let no man be, be seen throughout all the mountain, 
let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So things are different now. Where they had started out previously with 74 people and ended up with two going all the way up the mountain. This time there's only one. And Joshua is back down in the base camp at the tent of meetings. So Joshua did not go up with Moses on this trip to Sinai. There was a, a time that's recorded over in Numbers, the 11th chapter, in which Joshua appears to be defending Moses. Rick, would you read that? And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So he's learning once again. He was upset that we've got other people out there prophesying, but instead of Moses being upset, he's wanting more people to be on the Lord's side. At the edge of Canaan, they sent out spies. They were over at uh, Kadesh Barnea. Uh, and we'll see in Numbers 13, 4 through 15, that the 12 spies are listed. You know, they picked one person from each tribe. And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. And then in verse 16 of Numbers 13, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. I don't know if you knew that Joshua was the second name that this man was given. There are several places in the Bible where people are given new names, and Joshua was one of those people. I wouldn't be surprised if the timing of him learning his new name wasn't important to him as well. Uh, this term Hoshea, I understand from Jameson Faust's commentary, means a desire of salvation, while Jehoshua, by prefixing the name God, means divinely appointed or head of salvation or savior, and ultimately the same meaning as the term Jesus. Now we're going to look a little bit at these spies. Uh, we're going to look first at what the spies were asked to do. We're going to start with uh, verse 17 of Numbers 13. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way to the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Few or many, whether the land they dwell in is as good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Then they came to the valley of Ishkal, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. 
The place was called the Valley of Ishkal because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And 40 days of work. Now I want to go back and look here. In verse 18, it talks about the kinds of things that they were supposed to check on. See what the land is like. Whether, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. If you're charged to go in and take over an area, it's logical that this is the kind of thing that God, that the general, who Joshua had already proved himself as, would be able to go in and, and do. And whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. I mean, God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. And we're going to find out later that they're going to have to attack places like Jericho, which has got a wall built around it. Whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are forests there or not. And be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. I think it's important that we know that this is a time of harvest, so that you'd be expected to see crops there. And then when they brought back those grapes, now I have, I have seen some good grapes, uh, or scuppernongs or muscadines. If you want to see some good in our day, you go visit Virginia Mormon. She, She's got a great garden with some nice vines out there, but it wasn't anything like what they saw. I mean, just think about two men, a pole on each of their shoulders, and this cluster of grapes hanging down and dragging on the ground. I mean, this should have been the evidence that the people knew that when God said this is a land flowing with milk and honey, that he was very accurate in what he had to say. Now, let's see what the spies reported when they came back. We're going to start in verse 26 of Numbers 13. Now, they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now stop right there. Okay. They couldn't deny the evidence that they had brought back between the shoulders of these two men. I mean, it's exactly what God had said. All right, go ahead. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. All right, we've already dealt with these Amalekites one time. And we've still got some more of them over there waiting in the land. All right, go ahead. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, 
and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. A classic mistake I believe that these Israelites made, or most of them made, was they were depending on man and not depending on God. When you just think about the kinds of things that these people had already seen, the fact that they had seen those plagues happen in Egypt, and they had seen the death of the firstborn with that tenth plague, and how when they had followed God, they had escaped that particular plague, and how when they thought they had tr were trapped, when they were escaping, how God had opened up the Red Sea and let them cross on dry land, and then ultimately how the water had caved in and destroyed their enemies. And then we can see how they got manna to eat. I know it's going to be a big problem to feed two million people. Uh, we had a great luncheon today for the visitation team, but there was less than 200 people out there, I guess, at the visitation meeting. And that, but it's hard to feed 200. Just think what it's like to feed 2 million. And yet God, through His grace, had given them manna to eat. They had seen that and they had gotten thirsty. Forgot about God for a little bit and started thinking about going back to Egypt. But then God delivered water for them when Moses struck the rock and the water came forth. These people had seen miraculous things that God had done. Not only that, 74 of them had seen the presence of God. They said they saw God himself. And so with this as a background, isn't it terrible? Even after they had made the mistake of building the golden calf, that they're now questioning God's ability. Not They said, we're, you know, they're giants. We're grasshoppers yeah, compared to them. But they're not thinking about God's help and all that God had done for them. It is good that we're going to see that Joshua and Caleb are going to stand up for God. Now, I was just wondering about Joshua's name change and the timing of that name change. You know, when Moses changed his name and his main name meaning the same thing as Jesus' name, do you think that had any impact on his mentality or how important he was to God? Or certainly Joshua had seen God's power when Aaron and her were having to hold up Moses' arms to keep the rod up so that the battle would go in Joshua's favor. I'm not surprised at all that Joshua was one of the minority that stood up for God. We're going to see how Joshua and Caleb did that when we look at Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. 
Why has the Lord brought us to this land to, to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jehophanan, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel, rebel against the Lord, nor fear the Lord, of the fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That four-letter word there is, is something that we're cautioned not to have. There's only one thing that we should fear. And that's God and keep His commandments. Other kinds of fear are of the devil. And, but this whole mob of people had turned against God because they were thinking about their own capability and not their capability with God's help. God is upset. He wants to destroy the people. This is a time when Moses intervenes and reasons with God. Uh, this is a great example of the power of prayer because Moses' prayer was able to change God's plan and God listens and develops plan B. And Joshua and Caleb escape the curse of God. We're going to read about that in Numbers 14 beginning in verse 26. The Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? I have heard the complaints, complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from twenty years old and above except for Caleb and the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation to complain against him, by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Wow. 
I would say one of the lessons for me is do not upset God. These 12 men that came back to spy out the land and the 10 that gave the bad report, I don't think they had to wait for the 40 years to die. It looked like their death was immediate. But everybody else that was 20 years of age or older who had complained about what their children were going to, what was going to happen to them because they had brought them out of the land of Egypt, were told, you're going to die. You're going to die in the wilderness and your children are going to inherit this land flowing with milk and honey and they'll get all of these blessings, but you won't get it because you didn't put your trust in me. We, the spies went out somewhere between a year and two years after they had started their journey. And after this account of the spies, we lose track of what's going on with Joshua until we get about 38 years later. And then we find that Joshua is chosen to replace Moses. God himself chooses Joshua. In uh, Deuteronomy 3 and verse 28, but commanded Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before his people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. That was Joshua's mission. And Israel, they've had a lot of exposure to Joshua going all the way back to what happened 21 days after they crossed the Red Sea and saw him be a successful general all the way to them seeing him stand up with Moses when Moses came down off the mountain and they had fallen into idolatry and then as one of the faithful spies. And we see how strongly they are going to support Joshua here in Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 9. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, I'd like for us to think on several things. Uh, one is about Joshua and Caleb. The fact is, Joshua and Caleb were wholly obedient to the Lord. And also, Joshua prepared for almost 40 years to replace 
Moses. And not only that, Joshua was promised victory. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 38, Joshua the son of Nun who stands before you, he shall go in there and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. In verse 38 of chapter 3, But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before his people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. And in chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, verse 23, Then he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Just a little bit of food for thought. I want you to think about the preparation God allowed Joshua to go through before he ultimately put him in a position of leading the children of Israel. I thought there might be a parallel here for us when we see the qualifications laid out in selecting elders for the Lord's church. Because many of those qualifications imply things that are learned over time. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6, it specifically said that the person is not a novice. And in Titus 1 in verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. I think it's significant there that we're talking about the sins that they're not accused of, because those are not sins that children do. Those are sins that adults do. So the implication is that they're old enough to have adult children who potentially could have been accused of those things. And then it goes on to say, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So once again, you've got a period of time where a person not only develops a family, but is able to influence that family for good. And then holding fast the faithful word he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So we've got an individual who has proven themselves and been able to handle God's word, knowing what it means, but also applying it when those that do not handle it properly are involved. You know, Peter was an elder himself, and he said, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory, that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, and not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over their, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. What he describes here is not a person that a novice would be able to do. It takes a more mature person to be able to work with a congregation the way Peter talks about here. As we go through this study in Joshua, I'm going to try in the various lessons to see if there can't be anything or something that we could learn 
that would be applicable to us today. Would you bow with me, please, as we end? Our loving Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you put so much thought into who was leading the children of Israel. And we pray that we could learn to be respectful of you and obedient of you from this study of Joshua. We pray your blessings to be upon this class and upon the Boonville congregation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.